0: Thanks, Keith. Excited to start or actually finish this series this morning by faith. And uh, like I said last week, really this section that Keith just read for us is the end of this section. Chapter 11 and the theme that is in chapter 11 really doesn't wrap up until you get to chapter 12, verse 2. So that's why we're continuing on into chapter 12. And this will be the final sermon in our fall series on faith. Next week, we'll be starting our Advent series for Christmas. You've probably seen the slides if you've been paying attention to those. It's called Jesus Is, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah 9-6, the fourfold name given to the son that is to be born, um, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. So, in light of that, we've, we're also offering some Advent devotionals for you all to use uh, in your times with the Lord. If you would like a hard copy of those, you can get them right. As you're walking out the door, you can turn left into our little book nook area, and there's a table set up in front of Joan Hopson's office. And there's a $6 devotional and an $8 devotional if you'd like to pick up hard copies of those. They're also, they were also sent out by email. So if you don't want to get a hard copy, you can download the PDF onto your tablet or Kindle or whatever electronic device you use or computer if you prefer to do it that way. So we just want to equip you all to think about Jesus every day and not just on Sundays throughout this time uh, of Christmas and Advent. So please take advantage of that. We bought five copies of each book. I'd love to see them all sold out today. So if you're thinking about getting a hard copy, please go quickly right before the fellowship meal and take care of that because they'll probably be gone pretty fast, so... One other announcement before I get going is our new Disciple U classes for adults are starting next week. Pastor Keith will be leading a class called The God Who Saves in the HCS Chapel. It's going to look at sin and salvation. So if you've ever wanted to take an in-depth look at sin for seven weeks, it'll be an encouraging look. But an in-depth look at the doctrine of sin and what sin is and look at the seven deadly sins... Um, encourage you to attend that class, and then the second part of the class is really going to focus on God's grace and salvation, how we're converted, what repentance is, what faith is, all those sorts of things, so please take advantage of that class if you're interested in those subjects. Also, Tim Hoke will be leading a class called Gospel Parenting, and that'll be in the HPC Learning Center. Start, both classes start at 9.30. Please take advantage of those as we're starting a new round if, you're, if you haven't plugged into those already. Well, here we go. Let me pray, and we're going to get going on Hebrews 12. Father, we stand here as children of the promise. We choose to fix our eyes on you right now, our soul's great reward, until the race is finished and the work is done. By your grace, we want to walk by faith and not by sight. Teach us what that means from this text this morning, and help us to run the race. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three things this morning that we're going to see from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We've got a command here, something we're supposed to do. We also have some instructions for how to obey that command. And then we've got some encouragements to keep going when we want to quit. So we're going to look at the command, then we're going to look at the instructions, and then we're going to look at the encouragements. Let's take a look at the command first. You'll notice it right in the middle of verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's the command. No, sorry, here's not the command. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, here's the command, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice the chosen metaphor here. The chosen metaphor for the Christian life. For what we're to be about as God's people is to run a race. Just stop and think about the implications of that for a minute. Because that has massive implications upon the way we live our lives. The Christian life is a race, it's not a gingerly stroll or a crawl, it's a race. And as we know, races require focus, they require discipline, they require energy, and if it's not hard, we're probably not running, we're coasting. It's in fact this sort of coasting that seems to describe the Hebrew spiritual condition. Let me just take you to a couple of verses that seem to sum up this strong need to enforce to the Hebrews that they need to be running. It appears they're not running. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. So evidently these Hebrews are not listening. They're not paying attention. They're not giving a whole-souled, heart-engaged effort to, Christian, to Christianity. And they're drifting. At least they're on the verge of drifting. Chapter 5, verse 12, underscores a similar theme. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So he looks at this group of Christians and says, you all ought to be grown up by now. You all ought to be pressing on more mature than you are. Also, he stresses to them in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. you get the idea here? They're they're on the verge of drifting away. They're not engaging. They've become dull of hearing. They're not pressing on. They're letting their hands droop down, their knees weaken. And so, therefore, he says, let us run. It's a strong exhortation. It's a strong command Based upon their spiritual condition. Notice also that the race is going to require endurance. Right? He says, let us run with endurance. The Christian life, as we know, is not a, marath- not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long distance race. And the way we think about that impacts the way we live. The Christian life does not call for fast starts. And flashes of excite- Excitement. Rather, the Christian life is a steady pace over a long haul. The language of endurance and perseverance and running and fighting and being alert and being strengthened and not drifting and not neglecting and not being sluggish, all of which are in this letter to the Hebrews, is not to be taken for granted. We must fight. We must endure. We must persevere. We must be alert. And that's why... The author calls us to run with endurance. Also, notice the race is one that is going to require the help of others. It's not a race that we can run by ourselves. Let us run with endurance. Let us run. We need others if we're going to persevere in the race. If we are indifferent to being vitally connected to the life of a church, we put our salvation in peril, at least our profession of salvation. Let us run. We need others around us cheering us on, rallying around us, encouraging us, speaking truth to us, lest we fall out of the race. That's what Hebrews 3 verse 13 stresses but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and that hardening would lead to us not finishing the race which is why we make such a strong appeal on the importance of gospel community in our church and the importance that you be vitally connected with other Christians who know your know your sin know where you struggle Do you have anybody in your life that knows you that way? You need someone in your life that knows you that way. Someone that will love you because they recognize in themselves the same tendencies that you have. And don't let the devil fool you into thinking you're the only one that has your particular struggles. That will keep you hindered. You're not the only one. This whole church is filled. We all struggle and fight against sin. That's why he's going to tell us what he's going to tell us in a little bit later. About how to handle our sin. But the race is one where we need the help of others if we're going to finish. Also, notice finally that the race is set before us. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a race that's already been marked out. The path's already laid. The course is already set. It's not one where we're just running around hoping we get to heaven and and trying to keep ourselves out of the ditches. No, it's a clear course. It's a a course that's marked by God's word that's been laid out to us and that, that is followed. It's a path that's been faithfully trod by saints from millennia. We don't just stumble onto the course. The master of the games, God himself, has placed us on this course. Now, not everyone's course is going to look exactly the same. We saw that last week, Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 40, where we saw people who were living in this great deal of victory, and there was others who were being sawn in two. So the course is not exactly the same, but we are to keep our eyes fixed on the course and fix our eyes on the race, even though each of us will have a slightly different race to run. So that's the command. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is a race. It's going to require focus. It's going to require diligence. It's going to require energy. It's going to be hard. It's going to require a steady pace over a long haul. It's going to require a fixed gaze, a single heart, a determination to finish, regardless of what might weigh us down or hold us back. And so we come to, secondly, the instructions. Those things that would hold us back in the race that might keep us from finishing. It's these that the writer is gonna turn to and encourage us to throw off and get rid of. So first point, the command, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Number two, point number two, the instruction. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. We see that in verse one. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, why does he add that in there? Because that is essential to running. You can't run when you're weighed down. You can't run when you're tripped up and you're entangled, right? He uses both of those. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles. I mean, if we're going to run a marathon, you don't want to first thing you want to do is say, okay, give me a 50-pound backpack And then also tie 25 pound ankle weights around my ankles. You're going to get about six feet and you're going to say, this is ridiculous. Take this off. I can't run. And that's the author's point here. You can't run weighted down. You can't run tied up. You can't run tangled. So these are essential instructions for finishing the race. They are not suggestions. So what entangles? Sin. Sin entangles. Well, how does sin entangle? How does it entangle? We'll come to that in a minute. Let's think first of all about what sin is, all right, because we want to be clear on this. Now, we could define sin a lot of different ways, but I, I would prefer to define it just just in terms of what Hebrews says sin is, all right? So I want us to look at a couple different sets of examples that give us an idea of what sin is. Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verse 26. This is the one time that I'm aware of in the letter that the reference to sin is made to our struggles, our personal struggles with fighting, fighting against disobedience to God. All right, there's, there's, sin is used lots of time in this letter, but it's usually in reference to what Christ did for our sin, putting it away, dying for it. But this is used to our struggle with sin. So he says, 4, verse 26 of chapter 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, I'm not going to try to explain all that that verse means, but what my point is is, for if we go on sinning, the four will point us back to what he just said and give us an idea of what sin is. All right. So look at verse 22 through 25 and think of this. Sin is the opposite of these things. All right. So verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is sin? Sin is a failure to draw near to God. So, we are not, that will entangle us. If we don't draw near to God, we are sinning. If we don't draw near to God also, not out of a cowering fear, but out of a gospel joy, we draw near to God with full assurance of faith. We are welcomed by our Father. We have our hearts, our hearts are called to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We are not to enter into God's presence cowering in fear that we might not be accepted. We are to enter into God's presence with joy that we have been accepted, that we have been received, that we have been washed, that we are assured that we belong to him. Also, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So what is sin? Sin would be not doing that. It would be not living by faith, not walking by faith, not holding on to the promises of God, not holding on to our confession of our hope, not, being, not trusting that God is faithful to do for us exactly what he's done for all of his people in Hebrews 11. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what would be sin there? Sin would be Neglecting to meet with other Christians, to encourage them. Sin would be not considering how to stir others up. Not taking it upon yourself, the eternal security of another person. I'm responsible to help you get to heaven. And we need to all see that. That we have, we're we got, we're, we're like watchdogs for each other. To encourage and help and speak and keep each other in the race. So we see a brother... Falling down, fallen out. We say, bro, we got to strengthen your weak knees. We got to, we got to, we got to encourage you. Here's the truth. Here's the gospel. Don't abandon it. You see a sister who's struggling or having a hard time. You take it upon yourself. I'm going to go help them keep running the race. And notice he says that, let us do that. That's a church thing. Four pastors cannot watch over that degree of certainty for everybody. We have to do it all together as a community. Otherwise, we're not going to be kept safe. We're not going to be kept in the race. We're not going to be encouraged and built up. That's why he says, let us consider it. How to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. But coming together that we might encourage one another. So that would be one example of what sin is that would entangle us, right? Failing to draw near to God, failing to walk by faith, failing to encourage others. Let's look at one other example in Hebrews 13. The beginning of Hebrews 13 gives us some practical instructions. And you can always figure out what sin is by when you read the Bible and you see a command, just think the opposite. What's the opposite of that? Well, that would be sin. That would be disobedience to the command. So what does that look like? So Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. So what would be sin? I'm not going to love that person anymore. They hurt me. No, not allowing some reason, not allowing brotherly love to continue. That would be sin. Giving up on somebody, refusing to love them anymore. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you were also in the body. Why is he writing this? Don't neglect to think about others and care about others. Don't be so absorbed in your own world and all that's going on in your own family and your own life that you don't care about what's going on in the lives of others. That's sin. He says... Don't remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are suffering for their faith as though you were doing it, as though you were there. Show hospitality. Care for others. Welcome them into your home. Welcome them into your life. Care for them. Verse 4 let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Don't be immoral. If you're married, keep the marriage bed pure. Devote your entire passion and energy to your spouse. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. So obviously sin would be loving money, resting our security and our hope, being discontent, having the gimmies and the gotchas. I got to have it rather than being content with what we have. So those are just a few examples. I could go on and on and on, but I didn't want to just breeze through that and say, all right, don't, now, now don't let sin entangle you and not give you any categories for how to think about that, all right? So there's just some. We could go on, we could talk about more, but I've got a sermon to finish and I don't want to beat us down with the doctrine of sin for 45 minutes. That's not the main point, but I did want to give us some categories for how to think about it. So the question then becomes, okay, that's sin, so how does that entangle or more, more specifically, why does it entangle? Why does it, what does it do? Well, I think we're back in chapter 12 now. All we have to do is look down at verse 3. He's just given this instruction about running the race. And now he says, don't grow weary. Verse 3, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. See, sin has a way of wearing us down, of beating us down. It has a way of working us over. And so he encourages them to fight sin, to throw aside every weight, to throw away the sin that so easily entangles. Because if not, we're going to grow weary. It says verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted To the point of shedding your own blood. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Perhaps these Christians are thinking, okay, I have it bad. You don't know how bad it is. You don't know how long I've struggled with this. I mean, I've tried. It's been really tough to conquer. And the author would say, yes, of course, you have been through a great deal in your struggle against sin. You have been faithful. We've talked about you in chapter 10. Verse 32, that you have been willing to accept the plundering of your property and you've been willing to go after and and encourage other Christians and and all that stuff. We've seen you do that. You've you've struggled. It's one of the reasons why I wrote chapter 11 to you. But you've not suffered as much as others have. That's what verse 4 is saying. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted sin to the point of having to shed your blood for it. Others have. So his encouragement is, can you remain faithful in lesser suffering? Your sin has not cost you your life yet. Or I said, your refusal to not sin has not cost you your life yet. So can you remain faithful in the midst of lesser, lesser suffering? He's trying to encourage them to not grow weary. And really the rest of chapter 12 and the rest of chapter 13 is all what it means to not grow weary, to run the race, and what that looks like. But I don't have time to do all that right now. So notice what sin does. It clings so closely. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Other translations use entangle. What's his point? If we don't fight sin, we can't expect to finish the race. At best, sin will trip you up, and at worst, it will cause you to leave the track altogether. That means that we must get things out of our life and be willing to struggle and fight and conquer by grace daily. It's going gonna, it's gonna to crop up. We've got to cut the weeds back again and again and again, attack the root of the sin. But we have to get these things out of our lives that are going to make us more worldly-minded and put things in our life that make us less heavenly-minded. So, fighting would mean praying without ceasing and hiding God's word in our heart and meditating on it day and night and exhorting one another every day and taking up our cross and reckoning ourselves dead to sin and putting to death the deeds of the body and plucking out the eye and fleeing fornication, cutting off the hand of covetousness and yielding our members as instruments of righteousness and presenting our bodies as living sacrifices and putting on the armor of God and resisting the devil and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I just read you the Bible. That's how we fight. That's how seriously we're to take the fight because entangling is very real and sin clings so closely. But we're not just to cast off sin, notice, but we're to cast off anything that weighs us down. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So we're to lay aside things that are non sin If the only category we have in our lives is this is sin, this is not, this is sin, this is okay, this is not okay, this is okay. Let's examine this category. All right? Not everything that's okay is okay for you. All right? Not everything that is a weight is a weight for everybody. It isn't. But it may be a weight for you. Okay, music or movies may not be a particular weight in your life. Television, computers, right? All that good stuff. Those may not be weights. You might be able to enjoy that to the glory of God. It's, it's helping you run the race. It's, uh, but for some of you, it may bog you down and, 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 and take you down so far that you feel like, you know, you're just swimming in a CSN. Well, that's a weight for you. We all have weights in our lives, things that our consciences won't allow us to participate in, but that we don't apply across the board to every single Christian as an issue of sin. So what is a weight then? A weight, and this is for you, this is not anything I can go into great detail about because it's going to be different for everybody. And I don't want to be accused of being a legalist. All right? Because this isn't an issue of what God has said is right or wrong. This is an issue of what might be wrong or right or wrong for you. What hinders you from running the race? What weighs you down? So we have to determine if something is an impediment to you running well. That's the issue. Is it an impediment to you running well? Does it enable you to run better or is it something that hinders your progress? The fight of faith the race of the Christian life is not fought well or run well by asking merely the question, what's wrong with this? But rather asking, is this something that is going to help me have greater faith, greater love, greater purity, greater courage, greater humility, greater patience, greater self-control? Not, is it a sin? But does it help me run? That's the question. Here's what John Piper says. As a boy, I was mightily helped by having my very categories changed in the way I live my life. I commend it to you young people especially. Don't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, your habits, what's wrong with it. Ask, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? If we we cannot sincerely bow our heads and thank God for something, then for you that activity is wrong. Stop justifying it and move on to something else. That's your application. Can you bow your head and sincerely thank God for it? If you can, it's not a weight. If you can, perhaps it is. So stop trying to justify it by saying, well, God never said anything about that. Stop trying to justify it. Say Thank you, Lord, for this. If you can say it, do it. Because you're doing all to the glory of God. And you're not offending your conscience. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14. If you can do it from faith, do it. If you can't, don't. That's a weight. That's how we identify that. That would be a really robust conversation in a gospel community, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be good? Talking about weights. Talking about what's a weight for me. It would be good. That would be a great conversation to have. So if a Christian has poor knowledge, a life that doesn't reflect Christ, a tepid or timid heart, it's not because they're necessarily a victim of their environment or some special experience has not come their way. It's because something is impeding their progress that they have not yet put away. So that's, how, that's, that's what we need to know. Say, if we're, if we're lagging behind in the race, know this. Something is in their life impeding that. It's something in their life. It's not a circumstance. It could be the way that they're responding to a circumstance. But something is in their life that is either a weight or a sin. And that needs to be discovered and brought to light so that they can continue to run. All right? All right. Lastly, encouragement. So those are instructions. That's how we put sin away, put sin and weights away. All right, let's close with some encouragement. And the writer gives us two encouragements here, the cloud of witnesses and Jesus himself. So the writer doesn't merely instruct us. I mean, this is heavy stuff, right? Commands and instructions about sin. I mean, this stuff weighs on us. This is serious stuff. It's a serious sermon. It's a serious text. But the writer doesn't merely instruct us. He also wants to encourage us. And he brackets this passage in instruction. If you want to think of it like a sandwich, you got the top bun as encouragement, the bottom bun as encouragement, and all the stuff in the middle, that's the command and the instructions. But he he puts it in a nice bun of encouragement. The whole thing is wrapped in encouragement. Notice the first one at the top of the text, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... There's the first encouragement. The second encouragement, verse 2, looking to Jesus. So we're supposed to pay attention to two realities as we run this race and fight our sin. We're to pay attention to two realities, the cloud of witnesses and Jesus himself. All right? So let's take the cloud of witnesses first. This cloud of witnesses is the people, the men and the women, that are mentioned in chapter 11 since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, what does remembering that do for us? We sang it this morning in the song by faith. What the cloud of witnesses does for us is encourage us about the faithfulness of God to us. That's what the cloud of witnesses does. It's so easy for us to think that we're the only one struggling, that we don't don't have to... We haven't had to wrestle or nobody else has to run a race like I have to run a race. No, we're running the same race that Abel ran, that Noah ran, that Abraham ran, that that David ran, and so on and so forth. Isaac and Jacob, Joseph. We're running the same race. And God was faithful to them and he'll be faithful to us as well. The picture is that the stands are all lined. We're in the race still. But the stands are lined with the saints of old, and they are cheering us on to finish the race. Their presence in the stands gives us the home field advantage, even though we are the visiting team. Because it's a sea of saints out there and it can so often feel like we're the only ones. I mean, Christians, we're going to we're, we're just going to become more and more the minority in our culture and we are going to become more and more the minority. A felt minority. And in the midst of that feeling of minority, we can begin to think, man, look how few it's it's like I mean, I'm running, I'm looking up, I mean, I'm just I am looking at the track. I'm just running this and it's long. And it's not going to, and I don't, I'm looking out across the track. I don't even see the finish line yet. And I'm just running. I'm getting tired. I'm heaving. I'm breathing. The writer of the Hebrews says, pick your eyes up off the track and look in the stands. And you're going to see a sea of saints that are chanting your name. And so it says, pay attention to them. Think about them. Listen to them. They are motivation for our running. Look back at verse 39, chapter 11, right above our text, which I talked about last week. All these, all these saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised... Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on this text last week. I want to spend a little bit of time now, just a couple of minutes, just unpacking what this is talking about. Verse 39, I take to mean that all these saints, all these Old Testament believers that died, their spirits were made whole and perfect when they died and entered into the presence of God. That's what Hebrews twelve twenty-three says. But they did not receive the full blessing of God's promises. Not everything came true. They didn't get the resurrection of the body. They didn't get a glorious new age. They didn't get the new heavens and the new earth. They didn't get all God's enemies removed. They didn't get righteousness holding sway in the culture. They didn't get the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. They didn't get all those promises. Why? Why did they not get all those promises? Because you and I had not been born and had not finished the race yet. That's why they didn't get the promises fulfilled yet. Notice what it says, verse 40. Because God, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, those Old Testament saints, should not be made perfect. So what's the idea here? In other words, God's purpose is that all of his people, all the redeemed, be gathered in before all of them enjoy the fullness of salvation together. All of God's people, we're all going to get it at the same time. We're all getting the resurrection of the body at the same time. We're all getting the new heavens and the new earth at the same time. We're all getting the glorified existence. We're all getting righteousness holding sway. We're all getting the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God at the same time. The Old Old Testament saints have not yet experienced that yet. They're still in a disembodied condition, which is blissful. It's better to depart and be with Christ than to remain here. But nevertheless, that is not their perfected state. His purpose is that we all come into the fullness of our inheritance together. So the motivation is this. History is waiting for you to finish the race. All of history is waiting for this. This is the biggest event. Take up all the Super Bowls, add them all together, drop in the bucket. This is the big athletic contest. This is the athletic contest of all athletic contests. Watch sports differently. If you enjoy sports, I don't. Okay, that's no surprise to you all. I know that. But one of your pastors loves Michigan. All right? So if you watch sports and it's not a wait for you, that's great. Glad for it. Good. Don't think that's the big game. The big game that has the big stadium is in heaven. It's got the biggest stadium of all. Billions. And they're chanting and they're waiting for history to be finished. The entire consummation of the plan of the universe waits every single one of God's elect to be gathered in. All history waits and all those who live by faith crowd the marathon route to urge us on because they will not be perfected without you, nor you without them. So run the race knowing that the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before you will not be perfected until the church on earth finishes its appointed course. That's the encouragement from the cloud of witnesses. They're waiting for us to get there. Don't drop out. Fix your eyes on them. Know that God who kept his faithful promise, some of them were martyred. Some of them, they all suffered horrendous trials. You paid attention in chapter 11. You saw what they had to go through. Family problems, economic problems, struggles in their marriage, all kinds of problems, job problems. Joseph had a job problem. I mean, just all of that. And we're supposed to pay attention to that so that when we go through job problems and we have marriage problems and we have family problems, we don't bail out on God. God, sometimes you lose your breath when you're reaching a certain point. (laughs) So you don't bail out on God, right? We're meant to take encouragement from those guys and and gals, those men and women. But we're not just to take encouragement from them. We're to take encouragement from Jesus. Verse 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's run the race before us and he's calling us to come and follow him. He stared down the cross and he despised its shame. He said, you think that's going to keep me? You think that's going to keep me from falling out of the race? The cross, the wrath of God for all the sins of all God's people poured out on me, all their eternities in hell received into my soul. You think that's going to stop me? Hell no. That's not going to stop me. I despise the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before him? Our salvation. He embraced the cross. So that we would finish the race. That we would be completely saved. He stared down the cross. And he thought about every single one of his people. And the smile that would be on their faces. And he said. Cross wrath despised. No. I will not let the shame. That is going to come over me. Stop me from bearing it. For all of them. Our salvation was his. Great joy. Jesus knows what it's like to conquer. And to be conquered. And through being conquered. He conquered. It was his joy. In bringing our salvation to pass. That he was able to endure. He endured. With his eyes fixed on us. What love, what grace, what mercy. That's the only thing that will keep you in the race when all hell wants you damned. Everything he went through was infinitely worse than anything we're going to be called to go through. Anything. He had no one at his side in his darkest moments. And yet we get the enduring promise that he will never leave us and never forsake us all of our days. We can make it. We can persevere. We can run the race. We have everything we need. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places has been given to us. We have his enduring affection, his constant nearness for every trial that we will face. Everything we need to run the race with endurance to the finish has been provided. Our call is steadfast endurance with our eyes fixed on the one who has won for us. As consider him who endured from sinners. Consider him, consider him, consider him. So let's close this sermon by considering Jesus. Who is Jesus in the book of Hebrews? He is God's glorious son. The creator of the world, the heir of all things, the one of whom and by whom all things exist, the radiance of the glory of God, the one who upholds the universe, who made purification for our sins, who sits now at the right hand of the Father, superior to all angels, the one who has accomplished our salvation, dying in our place for our sin, propitiating God's wrath against them, destroying the devil and his power of death and liberating us from our fear, a merciful and faithful high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, who invites us to receive grace and help continually as we draw near to his throne of grace in every time of need. The one who can deal gently with us in our ignorance and waywardness, who has become our source of eternal salvation, a guarantor of a better covenant, holding a permanent priesthood whereby he lives to make intercession for us that we might be saved to the uttermost. He appears in the presence of God on our behalf. He has put away our sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Who, and he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the chances of this ever-changing are impossible since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 8. John Owen said, a constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual and the more heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. Get that. There's your key. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds with other things. You know what I did this week when I read that? Yelp. And so I spent half my sermon prep doing Hebrews and looking for Jesus. Because my soul decays. And the reason is because it's full of all kinds of other things, like ministry, which will kill the soul, good things. And not so good things. Harboring bitterness, feeding self-reliance. All those things. Worry, stress, cause the soul to decay. But Owen says, The reason is because you're filling your mind full of other things. But when the mind, he says, is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory... These things will be expelled. This is how our spiritual life is revived. Stu Elliott says, we only have two alternatives. We either have clear views of Jesus and keep close to him, or we drop out of the race altogether and proceed to eternal ruin. The example of other believers may spur us on, but in the long run, even that will not keep us going. In the final analysis, everyone depends, everything depends on us stripping for action, declaring war on our sin and all that is spiritually unhelpful. For this to happen, we must determine that we will go forward spiritually come what may. This requires us to keep close to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we keep constantly in mind, whose example we follow, and whose strength we constantly call upon. And that's the good news of this passage. This passage doesn't end in discouragement. It ends in confidence that we will finish the race. Why do I say that it ends in confidence? Because of the benediction that I'm going to give us in just a moment after I pray that reminds us that God is going to equip us with everything we need to do His will, and He's going to work in you what is pleasing to Him. He's going to work in you to keep you running. He's going to give you the encouragement and strength and perspective that you need to put one foot after another in this marathon. So let me pray, and then we'll read the benediction. And Patrick's going to come and give us a few announcements about the meal we're getting ready to take part in. Let's pray. Father, we stand here as those who are in the midst of still running the race. Lord, you know us. You see us right now. You know the sins that are entangling us. You know the weights that are weighing us down. You know the things that are, that are coming into our lives right now and, and, and seeking to undermine our, our running. We ask that you would help us to see those things clearly, to let others into those struggles, and to fight together to run this race that you have called us to run, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. May your seated reign right now, Lord Jesus, encourage us to finish. You're not, you're not fretting up there. You're confident. You've conquered. Your work is finished. And now you're bidding us to joyfully run, just like you did, come what may. Help us to pay attention to the cloud of witnesses. Help us to fix our eyes on who you are because in fixing our eyes on you, our, our souls are filled with joy and perspective and the decay withers and new life and revival comes. We pray that you would help us to do that for the glory of Jesus and for our eternal good. In his name, amen.